lesson today. Let me just say that this lesson is probably not one that is going to uh, make everybody want to jump up and shout and run around the building. However, um, it also might not prompt anyone to run down to the altar again, then it might in order for us to ask forgiveness. But I think it's, it's important, and one thing that I do hope that it will do is to make us examine our lives and our attitudes toward a certain group of people that is in all of our lives. I want to begin in the book of Ruth, chapter 1 and verse 1. Good place to start. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The story of Ruth takes place during the time of, of judges, the judges, rather than kings ruled over the tribes of Israel and Canaan. Remember, Joshua has brought everybody to the promised land. They defeated Jericho. Now they're starting to settle out. And they don't have a king. Instead, God has appointed these men to speak for him, and they called them judges. The first king did not come along until quite a while later, almost probably 350 years, and his name was Saul. So for this period of time, there were men that were called of God to be judges. And during this time, God used the judges to speak to the people. Sometimes the people listened, sometimes they didn't. The people of Israel, we see throughout most of the Old Testament, really had not changed much since they left Egypt. Sometimes they listened to God and God blessed them. And then when things got better, they decided to kind of follow their own direction. But if you think about it, people really haven't changed all that much since then. Today, a lot of people still conduct their life much the same way. If there's a problem in their life, they run to God. And then when things get better, they go back to doing what they want to do. Let's see how the, uh, the appointment of the judges came along. I want to go to the book of Judges, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Joshua, the son of Nun, we all remember Joshua that that took over after Moses died and brought him in. They fought their first battle of Jericho. Jericho. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gesh. After that whole generation had been gathered up to their fathers, in other words, after all of those people that came across with Joshua had died, another generation grew up who who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. If you go back to that, it's interesting. Go back to the 10th verse. Something that is very interesting. When that generation died, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Whose fault was that? It wasn't that generation's fault. It was the generation that had just died off because they didn't bother to tell them those things that were important. Remember Joshua, before they crossed into the promised land across Jordan, he went through this extensive Bible study not really a Bible study, but this extensive history lesson of what had happened and how they came out of Egypt and reminded them all of the things that God had done and how he had brought them out of Egypt, protected them, and provided for them. But here we see when that generation dies off, 
The next generation comes up and they don't, they don't know the Lord. They don't know what God had done for Israel. And so what did they do? They turned to something else. I think that speaks very strongly to us as parents and grandparents and those that have responsibility over younger ones that we have to teach them the things of God. If we don't, we can't expect them to come up and live for God. In the last two generations, I would say probably the generation after mine and the generation after that, I feel like we as believers have lost a majority of those two generations. Statistics tell us that 80% of children that grow up in a Christian home when they graduate from high school do not attend church. 80%. That's astounding. If you go back to what David wrote, he said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I will not sin against thee. There's another scripture that says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. So we look often at the younger people of of our day, and we say, we shake our head and say, How could they just be like that? Because they haven't been taught. We can't put all of the blame on those generations of people. So it's our responsibility, rather than shake our head at so many people we see out in the world that are just going in 50 different directions every way but living for God, we can't say, well, they've just made their choice. Some of them don't know any better. That's why it is so important for us to to have an outreach, for us to reach out to those around us and witness to what God has done, who God is, and witness of His love and what He can provide for you, and it's real. And we see right here proof, and I believe there's so much more to this Scripture than what we we just graze over from time to time. They did not know the Lord or what He had done for Israel. And we have generations in our day today that are the exact same way. Drop down to verse 16 through 19. Because of that, here's what God did. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of these raiders. What had happened is when they turned away from God because they didn't know him and they didn't serve him and they started serving these false idols, God allowed their enemies to come in and destroy them. But then the Lord raised them up, go back, the Lord raised them up from their raiders who saved them out of the hands of these raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Going on. Yet they would not listen to these, their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of the obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. Think about that. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. This is why God brought judges about. A judge would come up and say, hey, this is what God is telling me to say to you people. And they'd fall back in line. And as soon as the judge would die, they'd go right back to doing what they were doing before. And God allowed different things to come along 
in, that punished them because of their, their turning away from Him. The Scripture that we read in Ruth, <clears throat> the first chapter in the first verse, says that there was a famine in Bethlehem. Most likely, this was a form of punishment for their falling away from God. This was one of God's ways of judging Israel. Sometimes it was through natural disasters. Sometimes it was by their enemy coming in and just obliterating them. But this time, most likely it was because God's judgment was falling on Bethlehem. It's ironic to know that Bethlehem literally means house of bread. But it was because there was no bread in Bethlehem that this man and his family had to leave and they went to Moab. Ruth chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah and the other Ruth, after they had lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, took his wife and his two sons to Moab to find food. It's interesting to note that before they were alive, Abraham and Isaac had responded to famines also by leaving where they were and where God had taken them to go to another nation that was a neighbor in order to find food. Generally speaking, when they did this, there was trouble that resulted from the migration. In this case, Elimelech died. He takes his family out of Bethlehem, they go to Moab, and he dies. The Moabites were throughout ancient history enemies of the Israelites. They weren't their friends. There were many battles between the Moabites and the Israelites. And because of the instability of the the Israelites in serving God, sometimes the Israelites won and sometimes the Moabites won. It just happened to be where their heart was at the time. They kind of went back and forth trading out winning battles. The people of Moab, much like the rest of the people of of Canaan, were polytheist. In other words, they worshipped a number of gods. So we find Elimelech, who is a godly man, moving his family to a nation of idolaters. What's wrong with this picture? Once there, Elimelech dies, and the two sons, Malon and Kilion, marry women from Moab. It's very likely that that this act of marrying women from Moab was breaking the law of God concerning um, intermarriage between the Israelites and the Canaanites. Remember, God had told them not to marry of the people of Canaan. There are some Bible scholars that say that Moab is not specifically mentioned in Deuteronomy, and in Deuteronomy there are other groups that are specifically mentioned, so it wasn't. But most Jewish scholarship scholars regard the deaths of Malon and Kilion as evidence of divine judgment because of their intermarriage. I'm not going to make a judgment on that. That's, we'll find out when we get to heaven. But either way, they died when they, after they had married sometime. So we find a Jewish woman in a foreign land. Her husband has died, 
and now both of her sons have died. Now it's just her and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And after 10 years in Moab, Naomi hears that the Lord has eased the famine back in Bethlehem. Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness on you as you have shown to your dead and to me. So since the famine was coming to a close, Naomi decided to go back to her hometown of Bethlehem. She obviously had stayed in contact with friends and and people back in Judah, probably by email, and was looking for the opportunity to return back home. She had nothing in Moab. Her husband was dead. Her two sons were dead. So why stay here? If the famine's gone, I'll just go back to Bethlehem. But a thing that that really changes this story is that despite the fact that the sons had died, the two daughters-in-law had stayed close to their mother-in-law. Through all of this time, they had stayed close. When Naomi told them that she was going to Bethlehem, they said, okay, we'll go with you. So as they're preparing to leave, Naomi realizes that Israel had very little to offer to these two women. So she encouraged them, why don't you just stay here in Moab? Naomi said, I really appreciate that you were good to my sons. You were great wives uh, when when my sons were alive. And I appreciate your kindness to them, and I appreciate your kindness to me. And even with that, Ruth and Orpah said, we're still going to go with you. Even though you want us to stay in Moab, we're going to go with you. And as you read verses 9 through 14, you see that at first, both Ruth and Orpah decided to go to Bethlehem. And they take off on their way to Bethlehem walking. And after they had traveled a little ways, again, Naomi stops and he, she urges them, just go back to Moab. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. Just go back to Moab where, where your friends and family and everybody is. And then in Ruth chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried until them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. She makes the argument that I'm old and I'm probably not even going to get remarried. And even if I did... I won't be having any more sons for you to marry. And even if I did have sons for you to marry, you'd have to wait a long time. And you're going to be old and they might not want to marry you. She didn't say that, but that was implied. So with that bit of argument offered up, Orpah and Ruth begin to cry, and Orpah gives Naomi a kiss And she turns and she goes back to Moab. Ruth, however, stays with Naomi. Ruth 1, 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, 
I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That's some strong words. So after Orpah's departure, Naomi tries one more time to get Ruth to leave and return to Moab. But Ruth told her mother-in-law, look, stop trying to talk me into leaving. I'm not going anywhere. I am going to stay with you all the way back to Bethlehem. Even though Ruth had no promise of a bright future in Bethlehem, the only future that she had, if you think about it, was one in which she would share in Naomi's despair and loneliness. Because that's really all had, Naomi had to look forward to. But in spite of that, Ruth declared her loyalty to Naomi, her people, and her God. At this point, because of that, you, you have to realize how powerful this is. Ruth has denounced her own people, her own culture, the gods of her youth, and everything that she had or loved back in Moab in order to follow Naomi. She has said, I will leave everything behind to follow you. That's how much she loved her mother-in-law. She said, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. If, you, if we get back to Bethlehem and you're homeless, I'll be homeless right there with you. Your family... Whatever family you have back in Bethlehem that's still alive, they'll now be my family. Even that, old, that weird Uncle Herman that Malon used to tell me about. I'll love him too. The God that you serve will now be the God that I will serve. That's a powerful statement because it, it is a very strong testament, testimony to the faithfulness of Naomi and Ruth's dead husband that even though they lived in a foreign land that served all kinds of gods, they still showed enough of God and the belief in their God that Ruth was willing to denounce everything that she left behind. I believe that commitment that they had was what convinced Ruth that their God was the only true God. Why had they come there in the first place? Their God had sent a famine now the famine was gone, and they're returning back. And I believe Ruth is saying, you know what? If their God is powerful enough to do all of that, then I want to go. Remember Rahab? When she finally realized and she went to these spies and said, you know what? Your God is the God of heaven and earth. And I think this is what Ruth is saying right here. I have realized in watching you that your God is the God of heaven and earth. And I would ask us all this morning, when we go out into the world and the people that we associate with and the people that we spend time with the most and our neighbors and people at the grocery store, do they look at us and say, I believe that your God is the God of heaven and earth. Ruth continued, wherever you die, I'll die. And the only thing that will ever separate me from you is death, so let's get going. Maybe not those exact words. So in verse 19, we see that 
that Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. And when they get there, the people recognize Naomi and they said, is this Naomi? And Naomi, whose name is roughly translated as the sweet one, now asks not to be called Naomi. Instead, instead she asks to be called Mara, which comes from a verb meaning to be bitter. If you remember back when they were in the wilderness, there was a time when the water became bitter and they called the place Mara. So now Naomi has said, don't call me Naomi anymore. I want to be known as Mara. Now in the response to the story of Ruth that we have covered so far, many people would say, yeah, but that was back then. Or, yeah, but you don't know my family. Or, yeah, but you've never been where I am as far as my relationship with my family. But if we really believe that God honors the steadfastness of a family relationship, how do we make those relationships work? And I am by no means going to try to cover and provide all of the answers to solving family problems and eliminating strife in a family. But I do want us to look at just a couple things this morning. One of the things that goes into being successful in a family is give and take or flexibility. Did you know that the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco will sway as much as 20 feet? The two towers at the end of the bridge, even though they are anchored solidly, the suspended part of the bridge can move a little. The part where it's anchored doesn't move, but the suspended part can move as much as 20 feet. And I believe that this provides a, a tremendous example of what a happy, healthy Christian home should be like. Any family needs some flexibility, some room to move a little bit. Exactly. I'm not talking about taking all the rules and throwing them out the window. I'm not saying that at all and let everybody just do whatever they want. What I am talking about is a family that has rules and yet they can laugh and have fun together and have some room. I, when I was managing other people, <clears throat> when I hired somebody, I would tell them, I like to picture the management style that I have as a lasso. And it's this open lasso. Here's the boundaries and the rules. You can work anywhere in here that you want. Now, if you can't work in here, then that lasso might get a little bit tighter. And if you find you can't work in those, then it might get a little tighter. But to start off with, I'm going to give you a lot of room. You know the rules. And I believe in a family, in order to be successful, we can't micromanage every little detail of everybody's life in the family. I believe that as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, we have to provide room for them to move around a little bit within the guidelines of what is biblical. Maybe you don't like exactly the way your son or grandson or granddaughter or, grand or daughter does things. But if it's not immoral, if it's not going against the Bible, to bring it up is probably not going to do much other than just start an argument. 
And again, I'm not talking about throwing out all the rules. I believe a, a home that is going to be happy and successful is a home where every family member doesn't make a big thing out of every little irritation. Maybe Ruth didn't like the way Naomi cooked. Especially that falafel casserole that she made every Saturday night. But that didn't stop Ruth from loving and respecting Naomi. So what? I don't like her falafel casserole. She's still someone that I love and I respect regardless of how she cooks. And there are people that have broken up relationships over things that are more petty than that. Give and take. Flexibility. No one is going to be right all of the time. Give and take flexibility. Something that will help keep that attitude in a home is a home that is a place where forgiveness is always readily available. If you make a mistake, if someone else in the family makes a mistake, forgive them. If you start keeping score, a relationship won't last. Because if you keep score of all the things that I've done and I keep score of all the things you've done, you've done, then eventually it's going to come down to a big knockdown drag out fight and we're going to start throwing everything from the past into the current situation. It takes some giving and taking on everyone's part for a family to be successful. As we were saying, nobody is right all of the time. To be able to say, even to our children, to our grandchildren, to be able to say, you know what, about that thing there, I was just wrong. And if there is a disagreement, this is one of the worst things that can happen in any relationship. I'm talking about father, son, mother, son, father, daughter, brother, sister, whatever, is if there is a disagreement to say, yeah, but I remember the time that you, and that was 25 years ago. If you're going to talk about something, even if you're going to argue about something, keep it current. Don't drag up everything that's ever been done wrong over the last 35 years. All it does, cause more pain. Sometimes that's exactly what we have to do. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, although it doesn't apply just to families, it says a lot that applies to the love that we, we have to show in our families. Look what it says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records, what we just went through. It keeps no records of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So if you look at that passage of Scripture that was written how long ago, and you apply it to the way that we act in our family, how much difference would it make in families today? It's the same things that we've just been talking about. It always loves. It always perseveres. It doesn't remember the past. I believe that when we have this type of love among family members, we can see that same kind of dedication in our family that Ruth had towards Naomi. Another one is communication. If you go to any type of counseling, one of the things that they will always tell you that is important in a relationship is communication. One of the biggest problems in all relationships breaking down is a lack of communication. We live in a society where we are often separated by great distances from some of our family members. And we use that as an excuse for not staying in touch. However, with that being said, we also live in a society that has never in history had the ability to communicate from great distances the way we can today. We carry cell phones where we go. We can pick up our cell phone and call anybody anywhere in the country, and depending on your service provider, maybe anywhere in the world, anytime we want. Driving down the road, going through the grocery store, I remember as a little boy when my parents would call my grandparents or my aunts and uncles, it was a big deal. It didn't happen all the time. It was maybe once a week, if that. It was expensive because you had to make this long-distance call, and that was back before even direct dial. You had to call the operator, and the operator had to call that number. And it was horribly expensive just to call somebody in another state. And it it only took place at a certain time or on special occasions. Now we can pick up the phone and call California and talk for an hour, and it's the same price as calling Tampa, which is probably free if you have an unlimited minute package. It doesn't matter how long you talk. Yet, do we do it? Or are we too busy? We also have something that that we didn't have a few years back. It seems like it's always been around, but that's email. And email is not exactly rocket science. We can send pictures, videos, music. I get stuff from people all over the world all of the time on my email. Things of encouragement, songs, cartoons, all kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying that email is the cure-all to family relationships. But this is one thing that is very true. It is difficult to have a relationship with someone you never speak to. That goes for God too, but that's in a different sermon. What are the chances that Ruth would have gone with Naomi if they hadn't spoken to each other in years? Wouldn't have happened. Naomi, this is 
or Ruth. This is Naomi. I'm going back to Bethlehem. Okay, see you. Yeah, see you. But no, they had remained close. Even though the sons had died, the husbands had died, these daughters-in-laws had remained close to Naomi. And because of that, when Naomi said, I'm leaving, they said, we'll go with you. I think it speaks very, very much to us about communication with other family members. That's exactly right. God does honor the steadfastness in our family relationships, but I believe He also requires some things on our part for us to do. It's kind of like the faith without works is dead thing. God will help us to keep our family relationships together, but it does require some things on our part. And I have to tell you, as I studied this and as I read these or typed these notes up, I realized a lot of mistakes that I've made, opportunities that I've had to talk to people that I just haven't bothered to talk to. That's my fault. Another thing that I believe is essential to relationships of any kind is commitment. This is really not a trait that's commonly found in our society today. Commitment's really not one of those things that people like. Over half of all the marriages end in divorce. Why? Because marriage is turned into kind of a trial thing. We'll try it, and hey, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we'll just we'll get divorced. There's no commitment. But this is not just about marriage. It seems that most people don't have a problem ending any kind of relationship. There are children that haven't spoken to their parents in years. There's parents that haven't spoken to their children in years. I know of one that I'm around quite often where the son actually does work for me. His father also does some work for me. And I try not to schedule them there at the same time because if the son sees his father there, no matter what he's doing, chances are he's just going to pack up his stuff and leave. At best. His father was recently going through a series of tests for some health problems, and that when they first started, they thought it was going to be very, very serious. And I mentioned something to this son, and okay. Have you talked to your dad? No. No commitment. And this is the worst part about it. I've talked to them about trying, both of them separately, about trying to resolve this strife. No way. And it's about something that happened 30 years ago. It started with that, and then the next little thing came along, and it just got added to it. And then a little tiny something came along and got added to it, and that was the final straw. And now there's this father and son living in the same town, come to the same place and do work and they will not speak to each other. That's what I'm talking about, commitment. If we truly have a commitment, 
I am sure that there were things that happened in the 10 years of Naomi and Ruth's relationship in Moab where Ruth was aggravated with Naomi and probably where Naomi was aggravated with Ruth. But you know what? There was a commitment that was strong enough that said, it doesn't matter what happens, I am committed to this relationship. Even to the point where Naomi said, I'm moving to another place. Ruth said, I'll go with you. But you don't understand. There's nothing there for you. I don't care. I love you so much, I will leave everything I have here to go with you. Another thing is showing love and appreciation. Again, although this is an important part of marriage, it's not limited just to marriage. Look at the love that was shown among these three women. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. Both Orpah and Naomi left Moab to go with Naomi. Orpah and Ruth left Moab to go with Naomi. It wasn't just Ruth that left. They both left. It's when they got down the road a ways and Naomi tried again to send them back. It's only then and there that that Orpah said, well, okay, if you insist, I'll go back. But it wasn't like, yeah, you're right, I'm going. No, it says that they cried And she gave her mother-in-law a kiss. And I believe it it ripped her heart out to turn around and go back to Moab. Just because Ruth went all the way to Bethlehem doesn't make Orpah a bad person. Because she still was willing to leave. Commitment. She showed love and she showed appreciation. For many people in our day, if Naomi said, I think I'll go back to Bethlehem, their response would be, when are you leaving? Because we, we see so many times in relationships that there's not that, that love. The only thing that really connects a lot of people in a relationship is blood. The two men that I was talking about earlier, really the only thing that they have in common is one's their father and the other one's his son. As far as any other tie that binds them together, as far as any love, as far as any appreciation, there is none. And therefore there's no relationship. It's horrible. Orpah showed love and appreciation and respect for Naomi through all of those years. Remember, her husband had been dead for quite a while. And she still loved Naomi. And all the way up until the time where she, she broke down and started crying and they're on their way to Bethlehem, and she still loves her all the way to the time that there was that love and appreciation still in her heart. And today we need to have that same kind of love and respect and appreciation, not just for our, our husband or wife, for our parents, even if they're no longer living, we still need to show that kind of respect and love and appreciation toward our parents. I hear people whose parents have gone on and they speak horribly of their parents. We need to have that kind of love and appreciation and respect for our brothers and our sisters and for our children and grandchildren. Why? 
because that is one of the things that will keep the relationship together. You say, well, why are you going through this this morning? Because it's not just in the world that all these problems take place. The divorce rate among believers is not all that much lower than it is within the world. Exactly. There are people that go to church together that are related by family ties that don't speak to each other. So you want to know why I'm mentioning this in church? Because it happens to believers too. We can shake our head and, and, and look out the window and say, yeah, those people out there really need to get their act together. No. It happens in church too. And I know we are to love everyone. But today, I specifically am talking about our immediate family. And I know that there are some that would hear what I'm talking about today and say, yeah, but that's just one isolated instance in the Old Testament, and so it really doesn't apply to me. Really? I wonder if the New Testament says anything about these type of relationships. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. That's pretty to the point. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I don't think there needs to be any interpretation. That's about as to the point as you can get. Yeah, but you don't know my brother. Doesn't matter. That's what the Bible says. Colossians three eighteen and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live, enjoy long life on the earth. Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, I, I will say it this morning, and, and I can say it because my father's sitting right here. He and I don't always agree on everything. We don't. If we, we disagree on several things, but you know what? It doesn't matter that we disagree. We, I still love him, and I know that he loves me. And even when I disappoint him, I know he still loves me. Why? Because he's my father. My son and I do not agree on everything. Mainly because he's so much like me. And that comes back around. But with that being said, I love my son 
And I know down deep inside he loves me. Look what the Bible says in Colossians 3 and 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. We are to love our children. We are not to go out of our way just to see if we can make them mad. We are not to provoke. The King James Version says provoke. The New International Version says to embitter our children for the sake of making them angry or to stir up an argument. Even if you are the father, it doesn't give you the right to just see if you can make them mad. Or to show them that you are the boss. That's exactly right. Thank you. And then there's one scripture that covers all of the above people. I will close with this. In Luke 10, 27, Jesus made a statement that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And in response to that, someone in the crowd said, well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells this parable. And this parable points to the conclusion that everyone we come in contact with is our neighbor. So if we are to have that kind of love for strangers, shouldn't we at least have that kind of love for our immediate family? But you don't know my family. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Would you today, along with me, examine your relationships with your family members? Maybe you need to go home and make some phone calls today. Maybe there's someone in your immediate family that you haven't spoken to in a long time. Maybe it's because you haven't gotten around to it or maybe because you just didn't want to. But we've seen today that all through the Bible there is this theme to where God wants family relationships to be strong. Yes, God wants us to love the world and love the lost and love our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Absolutely. But I think so many times we talk about those things and we do such a good job at that. And at the same time, we neglect to love our family the way that we should. Maybe you need to call your brother. Maybe you need to call your sister your son or your daughter. And if that's the case, I urge you to do it today. And I say to do it today because tomorrow you might not have that chance. It is important to God that we build strong relationships with our family. God will honor a steadfast relationship in your family the same way that he honored the relationship between Naomi and Ruth. God bless you.